Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. You've started listening to a Brit and a Swede talking about Swedish history, and you're either mad like me and like to listen to history podcasts backwards, and so you've started with episode 94, or you've made it through all previous 93 episodes because you are like Chris and started with episode 1. Yeah, that's a long-winded way to say that there's different ways of listening to history podcasts. That was Orsa, and I am Chris, uh, as she mentioned. This time we're continuing the story after King Hans, or King Hans, took advantage of some drama over in Finland and internally within the Swedish council to claim the throne of Sweden from the reigning regent Sten Stura the Elder, who'd been regent of Sweden for over 25 years by that point. And there's more back and forth to come today, but let's first discuss our Swedish phrase of the week, as we always do. Yes, this week's phrase is försvinna som en måsskit i dimma, which is a phrase my dad uses. I've got to say, I don't know if this is actually a Swedish phrase or just my dad's phrase, but my dad is Swedish, so I guess by virtue of him using it, it is a Swedish phrase. I just don't know how established it is, but we included it because it's quite funny. And uh, I think, yeah, it makes sense that it's your dad saying it and not my dad, um, whose Swedish is mostly limited to saying hi and bye and thank you. And trying and failing to say the word chicken or schickling, which amused me greatly once when he was ordering in a restaurant. Yeah, but at least he's trying. Uh, don't bully my dad. <laughs> no, not at all. It's a very hard word as well. So I think your dad is uh, making a great effort to learn when they come to visit. But what does this phrase actually mean then? Well, the phrase for svinna som en mörsskit i dimma it means to disappear like a seagull's poop in fog. Very specific, I'm getting the mental image of a seagull in fog, but maybe slightly more relevant to your dad because seagulls and fog are what master mariners experience quite a lot. It means to disappear quickly, which I guess if a seagull poops in fog, it does. If it's quite foggy outside and a seagull or any bird for that matter poops, that poop isn't going to be visible for very long. So you could say, for example, it was payday last week and I'm already starting to run out of money, so that salary disappeared like a seagull's poop in fog. Have you ever said it yourself? I say it every so often. I think it's a good phrase. And if at least two people are saying it, then I think it counts as a Swedish phrase. Uh, it's just whether or not your dad invented it or not. Could just be the two Svensons uh, using it. Did you ask him about this? I did not. Okay. But I've tried to research the phrase and it doesn't really come up. So getting the hint that it, it might not be at least not established enough to be included in any dictionaries. Okay. But luckily, uh, the story of Sweden in the 14 and 1500s is established enough to be in this podcast. So uh, let's go back to that story and pick up on uh, the aftermath of what we saw last time, which was an epic victory by the Swedes at the battle or the siege of V-Boy, where there may or may not have been a giant explosion on the walls in the heat of the battle. After that, Stensturer attempted to send an expedition to Finland, which went massively wrong, 
and uh, his uh, compatriot in the Swedish council, Svante Nilsson, got uh, even more angry and annoyed with Stensdora than he had been previously, which was already quite a lot. And Stensdora had taken over the estates of Svante Nilsson's deceased father, in spite of many protests. And because he wasn't raising taxes for the regular people in Sweden, Stensdora was instead hoovering up any land he could find, and domestic opposition within the council against him was increasing. And it was now led by Svante Nilsson and the Archbishop Jakob Ulfsson, all of whom are key figures both in this revolt and in the story going forward. So, yes, when the council saw the Finland campaign lurch from crisis to disaster, this became the starting gun for the race to replace Stensdura. After a repeat of the Battle of Brunke Bay, but with the opposite outcome, the Swedish force is defeated by King Hans at the Battle of Rutebru, and Stensdura then resigns the regency, and Hans is finally elected king of Sweden. So he's now king of all of the Kalmar Union. But his decision to give Nyköping and then Åbo diocese, which was essentially all of Finland, to Stensture to keep him on side perhaps wasn't the best idea, because this means that Stensture is still very much part of the political game. Two years into his reign, Hans names his son, Christian, the same name as his father had, so if you're confused, then you're not the only one. But this is Christian II, who's now named heir to the thrones of all three kingdoms in the Kalmar Union, and very soon after, a conspiracy to overthrow Hans is started in Sweden. And Christian isn't Christian II, he is the second Christian. Good distinction to make. This conspiracy to overthrow the king is led by none other than Sten Sture and Svante Nilsson, even though the two have previously fought each other and been annoyed at each other's actions, they're now united against King Hans. There's nothing that unites the Swedes more than the Danes. Indeed. Stensdora's former representative to the Pope, Hermin Gad, he also plays a part in this. He becomes Bishop of Linköping around this time and uses the position to agitate against Hans's rule of Sweden. Yeah, Hans really doesn't get very long on the throne before the Swedish nobility think, nah, no, we're not really liking this. We thought the grass is greener on the other side, but the grass is not green in Denmark. It's coated in taxes and blood and disappointment, <laughs> at least for the Swedes. <laughs> taxes, blood and disappointment. What an awful trio of things. <laughs> exactly. This is mainly because Hans immediately starts putting foreigners in charge of castles and castle counties, and this gets the people annoyed as well as the nobility, because, yeah, we've seen this so many times before. I think Eric of Pomerania was the one who did it the most, well, and Albert of Mecklenburg. They just put in their German buddies, who then um, do bad things towards the peasantry, and it means that the Swedes can't take these castle counties and do bad things to the peasantry themselves. So, yeah, it's all about who gets the power. You don't get to put Danes and Germans in place of oppressing the peasantry. That's our job, said everyone in the Swedish nobility in the Middle Ages. 
The worst thing is, though, is that it's revealed soon afterwards that during his fight for Sweden, Hans had tried to team up with Russia for support, as we talked about. But now it's uh, becoming known to everyone that this happened because previously it was just uh, the Swedes thought, oh, it was just a bit of a coincidence that Hans is hating on us at the same time as the Russians. But then it becomes public that Hans wanted to give the Russians land in Finland in return for help. And so this is a big oops moment. And nobody in Sweden was happy to find out that Hans and Denmark were teaming up with their biggest rivals, Russia and Ivan III. And then a final slap in the face is when one of Hans's bailiffs fishes where he's not supposed to, in Sten Kristersson Oxenstierna's lake. And no... Fishing in someone else's lake is not a euphemism, by the way. It sounds a bit like it. But this is what actually happens. The bailiff, who was the king's man, fished in the private lake of Sten Kristersson Oxenstierna, a Swedish nobleman. If anybody walks around, especially in the UK, around like rivers and lakes and stuff, there's always signs up saying like private land, no fishing or no fishing here or all that kind of stuff. So clearly this guy hadn't put up a sign. Whereas these days in Sweden, because of the right to roam, you can fish anywhere you want. But that wasn't the case back then. So what happens? Well, obviously the only solution to someone uh, fishing in your lake is start a whole war. Yeah. <laughs> so why not? It wasn't immediately, though, because immediately uh, the locals attack this bailiff who's injured and then imprisoned for his mistake. But at the same time, the Swedes are really happy to get news that Hans is actually losing and then loses a separate war down in Schleswig and Holstein against the people of Dithmarschen, which we won't bother covering here, but Hans loses both money and men in this endeavour, supposedly thousands of men. And actually the Scandinavian History Podcast done by Michael talks uh, a bit more about this so uh, catch up with him if you haven't caught up with his episodes this is a big deal and the peasants there after defeating the Danes supposedly used Danish knights gold chains to keep their guard dogs on leashes for generations afterwards which is a bit of an amusing story like we said Sweden wasn't involved in this but it was a sign that Hans perhaps isn't as powerful as he's trying to appear to be so when he returns to Sweden on a trip in 1501 it all kicks off the council demand that Hans lives up to the agreement that he made with them when they appointed him king and accuse him of appointing all of these foreign officials and generally taking more power than he was allowed I mean Accusing him of appointing foreign bailiffs isn't just an accusation, it's a fact. It has happened. Exactly, and the council is annoyed to say the least, especially when this is coupled with news of the secret deal with Russia. So in the summer of 1501, the council, including Sten Sture, Svante Nilsson and Hemingad, write a letter saying that they reject Hans as king and says that he's broken a bunch of Swedish laws. So the battle is on once again. The high nobility and other people join in, but Jakob Ulfsson, the archbishop, hedges his bets and tries to stay out of it, urging the two sides to negotiate instead, which does not happen. No, it definitely does not happen. Stensturer and his force quickly lay siege to Urubru Castle, which was home to one of the most disliked bailiffs, Jöns Falster. Uh, he's captured, taken to Arburga just down the road, and uh, nice and kindly lynched oh. there. 
which isn't very nice. King Hans doesn't just hang around whilst all this is going on, though. He quickly returns to Denmark to try and raise an army, but leaves his queen, Christina, in Stockholm to defend the city from the castle there with around a thousand soldiers. And this is a really cool example of how noble women were expected to take political and military responsibility. And this story is quite similar to another one we'll see in a few episodes' time. And uh, when we see that, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, women in politics and uh, military affairs. So we'll cover all of that in a future episode, because like you said, it's about to happen again very soon. So fear not, we'll come back to this very interesting topic soon. For now, the rebellion spreads fast, and soon the city of Stockholm is put under siege. This is an interesting story, actually, as once the siege of the city started, the German knights in the city try to attack the Swedish besiegers, but they're pushed back and lose men. When they retreat through the city and back into the castle, a fire is started somewhere in Stockholm, and the citizens actually open the gates to go out and collect water to put it out, and the besieging army even come in to try and help put it out. Yes. So both sides are trying to put out the fire in the city at this point, which is quite amusing. The city is captured, but the castle remains in Danish hands and under Christina's command. The Bishop of Linköping, Hemingad, he's called Sweden's leading expert in sieges, and he commands the attack from now on. Yeah, you can just read his business card. Bishop of Linköping expert in sieges you know two natural things to go together i haven't looked it up but i have a feeling the current bishop of linköping is less of a siege expert we should have asked them when we were there <laughs> should send them an email but yeah this Hemingad guy is a really cool guy um we've mentioned him a few times now but now he's appearing in the story for you know properly and will be involved in a lot of events going forward it's time to just give a short background to him and in fact he appears so many times in these important moments that the Swedish podcast called Kung and Krieg call him the Forrest Gump of this period of Swedish history because he really does appear all over the place. Yeah. You know, he's been down in Rome and doing all that kind of stuff and now he's back in Sweden doing sieges, becoming a bishop. He, he really does. He's like a whack-a-mole. Yeah. We said how he'd become Bishop of Linköping in 1501 and uh, this is actually a bit relevant to his education because he had actually studied legal and ecclesiastical law at the University of Greifswald and University University of Rostock, both down in Germany, and he'd worked a lot in Rome as the Swedish representative to the Pope, as we said. But on top of this, he also had time to study sieges and other things, because he was also a military and a political man, so he's everything rolled into one. In fact, he was actually a master in gaining well-paid posts, but ones that he didn't actually take up. He sort of gets the certificate saying, Hemming, you're now the commander of this castle, but then he just tipex or white outs his name on the piece of paper and then gives it to someone else for a price and so they become the commander of the castle instead so he's selling a lot of the positions that he gets and doesn't actually take up so he's sort of a master in corruption as well in some ways Oh, gosh. But for some reason, he does choose to take up his position in Linköping, though. Well, most likely because it was actually Sten Stura himself who requested it. He needed someone who he could trust in this important political and religious role, and it helped that he was actually genuinely qualified for it, too. So the church people couldn't really complain because this guy actually knew what religion was supposed to be about. And he's a bit of a siege expert, but he doesn't have much artillery, and his one mortar breaks on its 
first shot. So he soon realizes that all he can do is to starve the people in Stockholm Castle out and the long siege begins. On the back of his successes in Örebro and to help the fight against King Hans, Sten Sture is named regent again. He visited as many towns, cities and villages as he could to spread the news and his propaganda of this renewed fight against Denmark. He really pushed the Swedish nationalist narrative that he had perfected when he was regent last time, and soon almost the whole country is in the hands of the rebels, bar some castles and outposts, but they have taken some like Vesterås, for example. But it is Stockholm that is the real price, and even though they have the city, they really need to get their hands on Christina and the castle. But like most every siege we've seen recently, they feared time might be running out. Whilst Hans doesn't have many Danish soldiers left for his army after his big losses down in the Deep Martian area, he does have time and money to recruit German mercenaries to take back his crown. Attention is definitely on Stockholm though, and to try and keep out the Danish relief fleet they are sure is going to come at some point, Hemingad and the besiegers have created some sort of long iron bar that can go out across the archipelago and stop ships coming in. So it's a bit like the chains that have been used in the past, but this one sounds like it's a giant bar. But annoyingly, when the ice starts to thaw and it's actually put out into the water, it doesn't really work very well as it seems like the castle defenders can just grab the other end and pull it in or destroy it somehow. So Hemingad's tactic is not working here, and now he's worried that when the ice is gone, this is when Han's relief fleet will arrive. Whilst it might feel bad for the Swedes, the castle defenders are by no means in fighting shape. They are now really starting to starve inside the castle, so much so that they have begun eating their horses. On the 29th of April, rumours start flying around that Hans is coming. The relief fleet is on its way. Hemingad has to do something and knows the defenders must be very weak by now, so he orders a direct assault on the castle. It manages to get into the courtyard of the castle, and whilst the keep and other parts of the building are still in enemy hands, this partial success is enough to force negotiations. So after seven months, Christina says that the castle will be given up on Monday the 9th of May. And she waits that extra week or so and does give up the castle on that Monday in May. Really annoyingly for her, Hans's fleet arrives three days later. So if they had three more days, they could have uh, been relieved by Hans and his fleet. And the siege was so devastating for the defenders that only 70 of Christina's roughly 1,000 soldiers remained alive. So this was a brutal, brutal siege and unbelievable hardship for everyone involved. This means that Christina is taken as a hostage and kept down in Vardstena. And what really is a bit bizarre is that Hans doesn't really seem to care about this. In fact, he takes this uh, capture of his wife as an excuse to move his mistress into Copenhagen Castle. So uh, to live with him there. So that's really scandalous there. Like Ali is ringing the scandal bell on Rex Factor. Yeah, King Hans really doesn't come across as a nice guy here. 
Meanwhile, war also rages along the Swedish-Norwegian border. Sweden captures Tönsberg and Alkohus, but can't hold them, and the Danish crown prince, uh, Hans's son, Christian, attacks Västergötland and Bohuslän in the summer. Elvsborg Castle is attacked and burnt down, too, before King Hans attacks Stockholm, but is forced to retreat. On his way back, his troops just ravage the country. It is a fast-moving situation, but basically by now it is just Gotland, Kalmar and Boyholm, plus parts of Finland that remain in Danish hands. And then in the winter of 1502-1503, Stenstura gathers more men and in spring the Swedes attack the Danes back. Stenstura goes to Blekinge and burns Leek or Castle. And East Blekinge is occupied whilst Kalmar is put under siege. The city, like Stockholm, gives up on the 9th of May but the castle holds out. And they're going to keep holding out and that's because Kalmar's even easier than Stockholm to keep resupplied as there's direct access to the sea and it's much closer to Denmark, it's probably about half the way down. And This is going to be a longer siege than the previous one. As the war seems like it's not necessarily going to end soon either, and perhaps because he was getting embarrassed about the politics of having his wife a prisoner for so long, Hans starts negotiations with Sten Stura, but pretty much just about the release of Christina. And in October 1503, she was finally released and escorted to the Danish border personally by Sten Stura, where she was met by her son Christian, who came down to Halmstad. And it's quite noteworthy that Hans isn't there to meet her. Even though we don't have any personal records like diaries or letters, it really does seem like the couple didn't enjoy the warmest of relationships. I mean, while she was kept prisoner, he had moved in his mistress with him, so that's perhaps saying something about how they treated each other. After Christina is released, the couple separated and Christina lived the rest of her lives at Nersbyhervet outside Erdensa. So whilst Hans might have had some issues in his private life, one small part of the war is at least solved, it seems. It is now that Stensture starts to feel unwell and starts to head back to Stockholm. But by the time he gets to Jönköping, he is really ill. In fact, he's so ill that he dies on the 14th of December 1503. This quick downturn in health has led some Swedes to think he was poisoned by Christian when they met in Halmstad, but there is no evidence either way to support that. But this is a big deal, and the leading figures of the Swedish rebellion, Hemingad and Svante Nilsson, realize that they need to act fast to ensure that the rebellion doesn't fall into separate squabbling groups, and that in turn leads to Hans taking advantage of it and swooping back in and undoing all their hard work. The rebellion needed a leader, and it's not good that Stensture has just unexpectedly kicked the bucket. And it was decided that that new leader would be Svante Nilsson. And some authors we've read suggest that it was actually Hemming Gad who was the real master and put Svante Nilsson in charge because he knew he could control him and he might be a better public figure. But others seem to think it was more likely that it was Sten Stura's supporters and Svante Nilsson himself who decided this. 
Hemming and Svante are on good terms, though, so the why is perhaps less important. What is way more important and fun is how they decide to ensure that it is indeed Svante Nielsen who is chosen as the new regent and not some other random noble who's up in Stockholm and closer to the council. We're in the middle of a war here. It's not a good time to have uh, council meetings and all those procedures. They're a long way away from Stockholm down in Jönköping, so they need to get Svante Nilsson back to Stockholm and installed before any other potential do-gooder jump in and try to claim Sweden for themselves. So this meant secrecy above all else. So the plan was... Pretend Stan Sture is still alive. This is like a Weekend at Bernie's moment or in that, uh, I can't remember which film, but an Arnold Schwarzenegger film where he kills the person next to him on the plane and the stewardess comes comes over and asks, oh, does he want a drink? He's like, don't mind him, he's dead tired. <laughs> so it's the same sort of thing. So what they actually do is they hide Stan Stura's body in a box that was then filled with furs and hide and then put behind some rugs and they found a servant called Lassa Birjason who looked the most like Stan Stura and dressed him up in Stan Stura's clothes, gave him his cape and addressed him as the regent. And Lassa Birjason had been the king's personal servant and was around the same age as him, so in about his 70s, when he's now asked or probably forced to play the role of his deceased master and he's even asked to wear the old regent's gold rings which now might seem like a bit of a minor thing but rings were of great personal significance and really signaled who the person wearing them was at the time since the rings were often engraved with the person's shield and in some cases even the seal of the country if it was a regent or a king and you see sometimes occasionally they might i don't know if this is just in films but they use it occasionally to like sign documents with their seal but I don't know if that's true or not and you wouldn't have just been able to get these rings uh, without killing or robbing the person who owns them so they're really hard to fake or just get a hold of so that means if this person has the rings they're much more likely to be believed to be Stan Stura. And the best part about this whole shebang is that they even blindfolded Lassa Birjason. Why? Were they just trying to pretend that Stan Stura was wearing one of those sleeping masks that you see some people have? Uh, is this what they're doing? Sort of, actually, because Stan Stura did have an eye condition that oh. meant he actually went around doing this sometimes to protect his eyesight from light and other things that might potentially give him a headache or pain with his eye condition. So I guess the sunglasses or other protective goggles weren't invented at this time, or they definitely weren't, so this was the best thing he could do to alleviate the pain in his eyes that he sometimes got. What an amazing feature that Stan Sture just occasionally blindfolded himself that is so helpful when you're his rebel friends who are now trying to smuggle his dead body back to Stockholm yeah so whenever you uh, imagine if you go back and listen to the previous episodes just at random points imagine that he's got a blindfold on so he's like charging down the hill in the middle of a battle and he's like oh let's just pause here for a sec puts on his blindfold and just starts hacking off random limbs from anyone who happens to be nearby him people sometimes ask me you know would I not rather sort of write stories and uh, fictional things than do all this research and do a history podcast? And I say, no, because history is full of things like this. 
Indeed it is. But this crazy plan did seem to work. And they didn't tell anyone that Stensturo was actually dead. So they dress up Lassabuius and stick him in the sledge and continue on up to Stockholm and act like nothing has changed. By the time they get to Stockholm, they hid the real body of Stensturo in Storkirken, the main church in the mausoleum there. And in fact, he's placed at the foot of the statue of St. George and the Dragon, which he himself ordered to be made after the Battle of Brunke Bay, which is a nice bit of poetic uh, moment there at his death. And nobody found out until an entire month after Stensturo's death. And when his death becomes official, he's buried at Marie Fred Abbey near Grip's home castle which we've uh, been past many times but mm-hmm. not actually been into and after Christmas uh, because Svante Nilsson is now back in Stockholm and is able to put pressure on the right people and stuff he's elected as the new regent by the council if you agree with the Hemingad is the mastermind story this was so that he could prepare the council to accept his candidate and likewise it's the opposite if you think Svante Nilsson is really in charge but either way someone manages to convince everybody that Svante Nilsson is the best person to replace Stan Stura. So they pull off this story of just hiding the body and dressing a servant up to look like him. It's unbelievable. And they're in the middle of a war against Denmark. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? It is perhaps worth just mentioning that Stan Sture didn't have children, at least not official ones, with his wife Ingeboy, and definitely no sons. So when he died, his line of the Sture dynasty died with him. He did, however, have one illegitimate child, a daughter called Bigitta, who became a nun in Vardstena Abbey. It's interesting to see that even though she was an illegitimate child, there didn't seem to be have been any kind of hush-up that we sometimes see in history when high-profile men have illegitimate children that they try to hide. Because we see when Begitta joins Vardstena Abbey as a novice in 1485, the abbey writes in its annals, Moreover, on the Sunday the 9th of October, Master Henrik, Bishop of Linköping, ordained a new novice, a maiden by the name of Begitta, daughter of the knight, Master Stensture, then regent of the Swedish kingdom. Thanks be to God. So we see there how they didn't try to cover up her lineage or not mention the fact that she was Stan Sture's child. That was put in the Abbey's official annals. Yeah, although uh, it did help that Stan Sture was the regent at the time. So, yeah, but, but very interesting indeed. But who is Svante Nilsson, the new regent? Uh, there's a bit of colour about his life too, as historians know an unusual amount about his private life through preserved documents, and mainly lots of letters from his Danish-born wife, Meta. And these are loving and caring, and she tells him not to drink too much or not take too much medication when he's ill, which sounds nice if maybe a bit bossy. <laughs> Yeah, I think they do sound nice. Uh, she seems to really care about him. Yeah, which is good. And Svante Nilsson, as we've seen, we, we've seen him pop up here and there because he's been part of the political life of Sweden since the 1480s. We get the first mention of his name in a record from a council meeting in 1482 where he's listed as one of the participants. And during the last two decades of the 1400s, he's participated in many battles, including against the war in Russia in 1495, and he's dubbed knight and becomes Mask, the highest military commander of Sweden, in 1497. So he's an able warrior and politician, but 
Like most of us, he also has weaknesses. His main weakness seemed to be his inability to handle money. Records show that personally, he's always short on cash. He has to sell his estates or pawn them as credit for large loans. His financial problems likely stemmed from a fondness for living an excessive lifestyle, which often meant he lived above his means. At first, Svante Nielsen feels like he should perhaps enter into negotiations with Hans and set up some sort of scenario like Sten Sturer had had for so many years, a de facto Swedish independent kingdom under him as regent, where the Danish king doesn't really try too hard to take it back and everybody can just get on with life. Svante Nielsen is supported as always by peasants, miners in Dalarna and townspeople of Stockholm, and before long he becomes increasingly disinterested in restoring the Union. And, uh, you know, even pretending to be a part of it, he wants to just get rid of it completely. And these groups are violently anti-Danish, the ones who are supporting Svante Nielsen, because of years of propaganda from Sten Stura. And if Svante Nielsen was to suddenly go into negotiations with Hans in a situation where, you know, they're sort of on top, these people wouldn't accept it. And they'd be facing another internal rebellion within Sweden to replace Svante Nielsen with someone who hates the Danes even more. And it seems like Svante Nielsen did have trouble keeping the rest of the nobility on side in Sweden too, because they wanted to fight the Danes. So war it was. The war kept going on. And whilst Svante Nielsen and the Regency do hold most of the country, Hans still holds the important castles in the south of the country, in Kalmar, Wiesboy and Borholm, and for years fighting centres on the Straits of Kalmar, which as we've seen is really difficult to take. And there's Kalmar on one side and then just a little bit up the road is uh, Erland with Borholm Castle. So this area has two very important castles that Svante Nielsen and the Swedes would really like to get back from the Danes. Domestically, most of Finland is controlled by Erik Thureson Bjelke, who sits out at Viboy, and he recognises Svante Nilsson, but is largely his own man out east. But after a while, most of the nobility, including Archbishop Jakob Ulfsson, started to desire a more lenient attitude to Denmark. They're getting sick of all this fighting. Yeah, so they're changing they're really changing their minds all over the place, aren't they? Like half the time when Santa Nielsen wants to negotiate, they say, no, we want war, and then after a bit of war they say, no, we want negotiations. <laughs> so for a while, negotiation and peace was on the agenda. In May 1504, Kalmar Castle gets given to a Swede, but to one loyal to King Hans. In turn, there would be a one-year truce and everyone would meet at midsummer in 1505 to agree a real ceasefire. Now, where have I heard that before? And so in June of 1505, Hans turned up in Kalmar with a whole bunch of ships and soldiers ready for this meeting. Svante Nilsson, who had the occasion ready and planned in his diary, turned out to be really, really late. And perhaps he was stalling on purpose to provoke some sort of reaction from Hans, we don't really know. But either way, he was so late that Hans called a spontaneous meeting of a court made up of Danish and Norwegian councilmen and convicted Svante Nilsson and some members 
members of the Swedish Council of crimes against the crown and gave them the death penalty, which seems very uh, harsh and spontaneous. I mean, we've all had friends who are constantly late to things, or maybe you're that person who tends to be late to things, but sentencing people to death for being late to meetings, that is a bit harsh. Even in Scandinavia, where we're generally quite sort of a punctual culture, not only was the sentence death, but all the property they might hold in Denmark was to be confiscated. Well, they say they actually wanted all their lands, but they had no way of getting the Swedish property off of them, of course. They also proclaimed Hans as king of Sweden at this meeting where there were no Swedes, which was just as pointless as asking them to give up their property. But it did mean that Hans wanted to try and put his foot down. He was king, and he was to be treated as such. As he couldn't kill any of these people from the Swedish council and Svante Nilsson because they weren't there, he did gather up some of the men of Kalmar and beheaded them instead, and left their assorted dismembered body parts lying outside of the city walls of Kalmar, which is entirely unreasonable. This event has gone down in history as the Kalmar bloodbath. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like we said, it sounds like a nice measured response to your partner being late for a, a business meeting and really sucks to be these random like peasants and farmers and burgers and merchants and all this kind of stuff for uh, people in Kalmar who just get their heads chopped off because their boss was late for a meeting. <laughs> it's really harsh because yeah, he's just still super angry. Hans just leaves in a huff back to Denmark and Svante Nilsson was then on his way at this point and he's soon about to arrive when uh, two weeks later he got news of this absolutely insane action by Hans and naturally he's not too chuffed about it. If he was stalling on purpose to provoke a reaction from Hans he'd certainly got a reaction but it was one that was a bit out of hand. All the members of the Swedish council were angry at this display of rage from Hans, especially the ones who had their names on the list as due to be executed. But some of them even then thought, well, maybe we should still negotiate. If, if we say we're negotiate, maybe he'll take our names off the list of murdering people? This was naturally very wishful thinking, and before long it was decided that war was back on. And it will focus on the coast and on Kalmar, which the Swedes really wanted to try and capture. But that is all for next time. Yes, there's going to be a siege and our buddy Hemingad is going to come back in, popping up uh, like the Forrest Gump of Swedish history that he is. So we're looking forward to that one. Uh, there's been a slightly shorter episode this time, but we uh, felt like this was a decent uh, spot to stop so we can continue with the story in a nice, uh, good chunk next time. Before next time, you can uh, get in touch with us on the usual platforms on Facebook, Blue Sky, Twitter... Um, you can send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com and there's links to all of that on our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. Yes, and if you like us, please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you don't like us, then I just suggest you stop listening. Yeah, don't torture yourself. No, uh, or if you're unsure, give it a few episodes and see if we grow on you. Hopefully we do. Yeah, exactly. I hope you do too. Um, and to all of you who's listened to the end of this episode, uh, thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, doll.